This podcast is brought to you by Intel vPro. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Mark Mason is City's chief financial officer and one of Wall Street's highest ranking black executives. In the past year, the company has committed over $1 billion to tackle the racial wealth gap in banking and credit, housing, and entrepreneurship. Mason joins Washington Post Live to discuss the initiatives and corporate America's role in addressing systemic racism. Let's listen. Again, uh, good afternoon. I'm Jonathan Capehart, opinion writer for The Washington Post Unmuted, and welcome to our uh, one more installment in our series, Race in America. In his powerful speech observing the 100th anniversary of the Tulsa race massacre yesterday, President Biden talked about the racial wealth gap in the nation as a whole and how it manifests itself in Tulsa in particular. But corporate America is already trying to do its part in addressing systemic racism. Here to talk about what City is doing to tackle the racial wealth gap and the role corporate America can play in addressing systemic racism is Mark Mason, City's chief financial officer. Mark, welcome to Washington Post Live. Thank you, Jonathan. Great to see you and great to be here with you. Likewise, and thank you for that assist in saying, I can't hear you, I can't hear you. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Well, let's start um, this conversation by trying to understand the racial wealth gap. The Wall Street Journal reported last month that, quote, the median net worth of black households is about one-eighth that of white households, according to government data, and this is despite income gains by black families. Why is that? Yeah, you know, it's um, it's an interesting question, and we've done some research around this, and that wealth gap is real, and it's persisted for many, 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 many years. And as we've looked at it, we've looked at kind of the racial gaps that exist that range from gaps in wages, housing, education, and investment. And if we were able to have closed that gap 20 years ago, there'd be over $16 trillion um, of, of additional capacity in this economy today. And in fact, if we could actually close that gap in those categories, so again, housing, education, wages, investments, there'd be another $5 trillion over the next five years in terms of additional GDP. So this is a meaningful gap that has persisted for many, many years um, that, that it's important that we get after and find a way to help close. All right. So this is great. Housing, education, wages and investment. So let's go through each of these with with housing. Talk about how how did redlining rob generations of black Americans of generational wealth and what role, if any, can federal policy play uh, today on home ownership? Yeah, look, I mean, if you if you think about how wealth is created in um, in various ethnicities, a lot of times it's created through passing along um, um, housing, passing along as inheritance um, homes. And that gives a foundation to the next generation by not allowing uh, blacks into certain communities or chasing blacks out of certain communities. You take, a, you take away that opportunity to, to transition wealth from generation to generation. We're actually doing a lot here at City around this topic because of its importance. So we're doing a lot in the way of affordable housing. We did a large bond issue over two and a half billion dollars, the first ever focused on affordable housing. We use minority broker dealers to do so. 
again, with an effort towards how can we do or play our part in closing that, that, racial, uh, that racial wealth gap that exists out there. Housing is a very important part of that. The social policies that are being considered are very important elements of that. And corporations, particularly banks, play a very important role in that. And a part of the story, though, is that banks, and I would love for you to talk about the, the role of, of banks in fostering this, this problem with discrimin discriminatory lending and, and housing practices that have, that have hurt communities of color. Can you talk about that? And what's the industry trying to do to try to course correct? Yeah, look, the history around that is uh, when you look at banking, there is a history of lending only to only in certain communities, lending to only certain types of people, associating that with credit risk or perceived credit risk that, again, precludes Blacks from being able to, to buy homes and live in certain communities. And, and that has to change. And many of the banks have made considerable efforts to do that with taking hard looks at our underwriting um, and changing our practices and policies to ensure that we're rooting out some of the inherent racism that may have existed for years and years and years. And again, part of the efforts that we try to put in place as we look at the initiatives that we're gonna talk about here have been largely around how do we actually change the way we do business so that we can root out those types of practices, uh, whether they're blatant or not so blatant. All right, let's go down to uh, education um, and let's talk about student loan debt. Uh, the president of the NAACP yesterday um, commented on President Biden's plan. And here's his quote. He says that the plan fails to address the student loan debt crisis that disproportionately affects African-Americans. You cannot begin to address the racial wealth gap without addressing the student loan debt crisis. Should the government be doing more to tackle, to tackle that student loan, um, the student loan debt um, as a means of narrowing the racial wealth gap? Yeah, look, I mean, student loan debt, and more importantly, Education, I think, is a fundamental um, issue to addressing this racial wealth gap. Um, and we are doing a whole lot as it relates to really trying to do more recruiting at HSBCU, HBCUs, um, but also trying to support students who are joining our firm and organization as it relates to their student debt. The answer is that um, there's a lot that we have to do collectively as a society to try and address this. Um, affordability should not be an, an issue that precludes black youth from being able to pursue higher education. We should be able to find a way in America to support that and to do so without creating debt burdens that don't allow for us to, to, to cover them and get out of the communities that, or grow out of the communities that we've, we've, uh, we've been a part of. So now you've mentioned a couple of times you wanted to talk about the initiatives that city is um, engaging in. So let, let's talk about them. What it, what, what's the role of financial institutions in tackling the racial wealth gap? And what specifically is Citi doing to uh, address it? Yeah, you know, Jonathan, you got to take, or we should take a step back for a second and just perhaps talk a little bit about how we got to where we are today and the important initiative that we launched back in September of 2020. Um, we just recently acknowledged the, the one-year uh, anniversary, so to speak, of the horrific uh, George Floyd murder. And um, we all can think back to where we were when that occurred and the impact that it had really around the world. Um, and in many ways, it's that impact. And, and it's unfortunately not that it was a new type of event, but one 
that made it blatantly obvious and hard to avoid. Um, and unfortunately, it's that impact that in some ways served as a catalyst for many corporations um, around, around the world and certainly here in the U.S. to take a more proactive um, action, if you will, to try and drive change in this area. And it certainly was uh, uh, the case, that certainly was the case for City. In fact, I remember very clearly back to when that occurred and having a discussion with our then CEO about who was going to actually speak out on this from our leadership team. And we both decided to do that. And I referenced that because it's taken that opportunity to speak out on the issue that led to our entire management team coming together and really having a discussion around what we could do as an organization to have a more substantive impact on trying to help close this racial wealth gap. And in fact, it wasn't just our, our city foundation that led this discussion or effort, but instead it was the business leaders that sat at the table and really tried to drum up the ideas that we thought would be most meaningful. And we came up with four goals that support um, or that underlie this billion dollar initiative. One was a goal of providing greater access to banking and credit to communities of color. The second was really investing or increasing our investment in black businesses and black owned businesses. And the third was expanding home ownership. We talked a little bit about that earlier among black Americans. And the fourth was really what role can we play in, advance, in advancing anti-racist practices across the financial service industry. And so those were the four and are the four goals that support this billion dollar initiative. We've made, I think, some very good progress around those four goals, but there's certainly a lot more to do. Yeah, I was about to ask you, what grade, what grade would you give? Give yourself a grade on yeah. uh, achieving the goals you set out. Yeah, so again, this was a multi-year effort. So we're now about one year in. I'd say I'd give us about a B in terms of the grade. Um, I can take you through a few of the things, but the first bucket was expanding um, banking and credit and access to banking and credit uh, in these communities. And we had a $100 million goal to support minority depository institutions. Uh, we've invested about $50 million thus far. Um, equity investments to help these minority depository institutions grow and put that to work in these underserved communities, right? And we've invested with Broadway Financial, Citizens Trust, uh, Mechanics Farmers Bank, Optus Bank, uh, and a host of other banks in order to really drive that impact. We've also been trying to support access uh, to consumers, right? To, to uh, minority consumers in underserved communities, partnering with the National Urban League and expanding access to our city access account, which are low fee, no fee types of checking and savings accounts. Again, starting that financial education early. Um, the second goal was about investing in black owned businesses. We allocated a $50 million on top of our already existing impact fund in order to invest in black owned businesses. To date, we've uh, invested about, in about 16 businesses in our impact fund, about six of them are black owned and about 18% of the money that we put into these equity investments are in those six businesses. We've also set a target of a billion dollars um, in, uh, in diverse, diverse, diversity supplier spending 
Uh, and in 2020, we reached about 875 million and more than 350 million with black owned businesses again. And so considerable efforts on those fronts in the affordable housing area, just last week, just last Wednesday, we announced a $200 million equity investment in five black owned investment managers that are focused on supporting affordable and workforce projects. And so a lot of progress in that, in that vein. Um, and I mentioned earlier, the two and a half billion dollar affordable housing issuance that we've done in January, we did it, we did a two and a half billion dollar uh, bond issuance with all black owned broker dealers. And so I'd give us a B in terms of the progress that's here. But again, there's a lot more to mm -hmm. get done, both as it relates to how we impact the external communities and the work that we have to continue to do internally. So you give, you give City a B, um, but I'm here thinking a year ago, uh, after the murder of George Floyd, companies all across the country made bold pledges um, about you know, working toward you know, greater diversity and inclusion and racial, and, and racial equality. What grade would you give um, corporate America as a whole. City, you give a B, but what grade would you give corporate America as a whole in terms of achieve, yep. achieving the goals that they've set out? Yeah, so let me, let, me, let me parse that a little bit, right? So I'd give City a B as it relates to the target we set for this billion dollar initiative mm -hmm. and the progress we've made in this first year, okay? If I answer the broader question, what, what grade would I give the financial services industry or corporate America in terms of generally making progress as it relates to diversity, it would be somewhere around a D, right? I think there's mm. a lot of work that we need to do in corporate America, in financial services, in terms of making progress on that front. And that work ranges from um, board representation, it ranges to senior management representation, and straight through recruiting on the front end. Right now, that that we've made progress on some of those things over the course of the past year. We've actually seen an increase, I think, in the number of um, of, of blacks that are represented on boards. There's been you know, a significant increase that has unfolded over the past year. We're still short as it relates to black CEOs. We're still short, I think, as it relates to um, in banking blacks around the leadership table. Um, right before this George Floyd incident, I think I was probably one of the only blacks across um, certainly the top financial services or top banks that sat at the leadership table. There have been efforts since then. But my point here is that there's a long way to go. We've made some progress, but there's a long way to go, I think, as an industry. And there's a long way to go in corporate America more broadly. So before the murder of George Floyd, um... Corporate, corporate leaders like you were working in these institutions, um, you know, making a wave if you can in your own way within your institutions. But then the murder of George Floyd happened. And for you, four days after that happened, you wrote a blog post on City's website about what it's like to personally, to have personally watched um, the video of the killing of George Floyd. And you opened by repeating, I can't breathe 10 times. Why, why did you decide to speak up then and speak up in such a public manner? Yeah. Um, 
look, I, I've often asked uh, myself and my colleagues, as we've seen these incidents occur over time, if this doesn't compel us to speak, then what will? Right. And when, you know, this was a particularly impactful event, in part, I think, because so many people around the world were at home uh, and were able to see this video uh, real time or uh, almost real time, uh, but certainly live. And I, I saw the video with my family, my wife and two children. Um, and we were as impacted as anyone else, if not more, given that I am I'm a black male, I have a son, I have a daughter. And, and you know, we we kind of have the same fears and concerns that you have read about and others have talked about. And um, my family, we looked at each other and said, what, what are we going to do? What can we do? Um, I was on the phone with colleagues and colleagues. We have, you know, very, very. Um, you know, capable black managing directors here that are exceptional at what they do. We asked each other, they asked me, what, what are we gonna do? What's City going to do? Um, I spoke to, I mentioned earlier, our then CEO, and he said, this, this compels me, right? And so um, it, was, it was important, I think, to speak out. Um, one, to represent that city and the leadership team um, was aware uh, of what, was going on and the impact that it's having on our employees. Um, but two, that we wanted to actually roll up our sleeves and, and take action, action in the way of building greater awareness and ensuring that people become educated in the history of a lot of this and action that can actually drive change. And so I'd say it was it was those that that series of things, not the least of which is the the impact of, of family that drove me to to speak out and to do so in a way that I'd hope would touch many people and more importantly, drive them to want to learn more and want to take action that that, that brings about change. And I got to well, tell you, Jonathan, the, sir. Response, the response was incredible. The response was incredible and it was global. As you know, we're a global company in over 98 countries, had hundreds of emails from people. Um, one, glad that you spoke out. Um, it's encouraged me to use my platform and speak out. Um, everything from that to, um, I was, you know, my grandparents were racist and um, I'm, I'm so glad that I now uh, can learn more and, and I'm driven to educate myself on the history of this, of this and how I can drive and impact change. So a wide range of, um, of, of responses to, to, that, uh, to that note. Yeah, that anticipated the next question I was going to ask, which was the response inside City. But there was a, a Wall Street Journal uh, story, one, that pointed out that it was your teenage son who's, who um, spurred you to speak out. And it, this was the quote, you're the CFO of the entire bank. If you put, some, if you put something out, people will, will read it. And as you just yeah. said, in terms of the reaction, people most certainly did. But also what you didn't mention was that yes, you're a global company, but there was a there, there was a global town hall that had and correct me if I'm wrong. Well, the entire 200,000 person uh, company was invited there, and yeah. you know, speaking about your the the former uh, CEO, 
you know, that conversation was a moment of introspection for a lot of people at the company, including the then CEO, who said that the two of you, you, you golfed together, yeah. you, you did all sorts of things together, and yet he didn't know as much as he should have known about you until that moment. How, how, how did that hit you when you heard that? Yeah, you know, it's, um, you're right. That was a, a monumental moment in many ways for this firm. Uh, we had never had a town hall that was fo focused on a topic of this nature. Sure, we had met on diversity, but but never really a topic that was focused specifically on on race. And so that was a very touching town hall. It was also a town hall, again, because we were all remote, that probably drew the largest level of attendance that we've seen of, of almost any town hall that we've held. Um, I, I have to tell you that, that um, that Mike, our CEO, who I've known for a very long time, we worked very closely together, did not tell me that he was going to say that. Um, mm -hmm. And so I was I was very touched by that, Jonathan, in a way, um, because he was being honest. He was speaking his truth. Um, and uh, and I thought that was important and I thought it was genuine. And frankly, I thought it resonated with uh, with the employee base. Um, I think it says a lot about kind of being able to come to work and bring your authentic self and have people really know who you are as a as a person. Um, mm -hmm. and, and Mike being forthright about that, I think says a lot about who he is. Um, I will tell you that we've since spent um, a lot of time um, and not just playing golf and despite this being a pandemic um, together and, and actually talking about uh, everything in our in our lives. And, and he remains a very good friend. And I think a phenomenal leader, and we miss him here at the firm. Well, I mean, that that is good to hear, um, that little postscript you added there, because I wrote down a word on my little notepad that I keep here as I take notes sometimes during these interviews, and I wrote down the word burden. The burden that we have, and I say, and I'm including myself in that we, when we are either the only one in the room, the only one in the in the company, or the only one in, a, or one of a few in a situation, the burden of being, of having to represent uh, an entire community. And I want to read you this quote from the from Merck CEO Ken Frazier. He he said, as an African American as African American business executives, we don't have the luxury of being bystanders to injustice. We don't have the luxury of sitting on the sidelines when these kinds of injustices are happening all around us. You would agree with that statement, wouldn't you? Yeah, I would. I would absolutely agree. And I think it's a, look, I think it's a responsibility that we, that we have to, um, to speak out. And if you're the, you know, I've, I've been in, um, you know, I've been in talent sessions, for example, um, where we're talking about succession planning and the like, and while we're talking about the performance of our talent and, We'll get to a, a black employee that I know, and I think it's important to to use my voice and talk about the performance of that black employee and where that person's going mm -hmm. in the way of session. Uh, we've had issues most recently that Ken Frazier and Ken Chenault very were very vocal around in terms of um, voting policy. Right, um, and I spent time with our with our new CEO Jane Frazier, who's phenomenal, um, talking about voting policy and and city supporting the effort that that Ken and Ken were 
promoting in terms of corporate America speaking up around the importance of protecting voter rights, right? And so um, being, being in the room in many ways comes with the responsibility of using your voice. Um, and, and that's a responsibility that, that, I, that I have and I'm happy to, to have. And sometimes it's a burden, but often I view it as just that, a responsibility to try and drive change. Yeah, this is when I know a great conversation is going well. The time is the time is running out. I'm going to try to squeeze in a bunch, uh, a bunch okay. of questions in the five minutes or so that we have left. HBCUs have long um, produced graduates at the center of Amer of American public life. You went to Howard University. You're the vice chair of the board. Vice President Kamala Harris went to to Howard. Walgreens' new CEO Roz Brewer went to Spelman. Um, is there something special about HBCUs that prepared y'all for the roles you have today? Absolutely, absolutely. I, I'm a proud, proud, proud Howard alum. And, um, and you're right, I'm the vice chair there. And I think we're doing, I think the president, President Frederick is doing phenomenal things you know, at the university, but, but it, does, it does prepare you, I think, in a unique way. Um, you have an opportunity to be amongst other other Blacks who, um, who are highly intellectual, who are driven, um, who understand their history, who want to make an impact in the world, um, who are committed to learning and committed to, to, to driving change. And I think in many ways that's infectious. Um, I think there, there's an incredible opportunity to learn at these institutions. Um, you know, the, the, what I learned at Howard in terms of uh, studying business in undergrad, I think more than prepared me um, to not only compete in corporate America coming out of undergrad, but to to go on to graduate school and compete with the best and brightest at Harvard Business School, and uh, and so on and so forth. And so I think these HBCUs are incredibly incredibly powerful and impactful, um, and, uh, and and I'm very obviously supportive and and, and biased in that regard. Happy to. <laughs> um, one of the things that a lot of people were talking about, particularly a lot of black people were talking about a little more than a year ago, was the fact that the demonstrations that were happening all over the country were not just African-Americans taking to the streets and demanding that people um, take what happened seriously, but it, everybody, it seemed, came out into the street, particularly white Americans came out into the streets to protest the killing of George Floyd. And there's a lot of optimism in the country about what that said about who we are as Americans and, and how far things could go with that kind of energy. Now that we are a year out from the murder of George Floyd and just, a, a, I guess it's about a couple of months now since the guilty verdict of Derek Chauvin, do you still feel that, assuming you felt the optimism, and just put, put that on you, that level of optimism, engagement, awareness, is it still there or has it dissipated and we have to find ways to, to keep it going? Yeah, I, I think realistically, we're always gonna have to find ways to keep it going. It's very easy for other things to, to become distractions or become a priority. But I think that was a moment in time uh, that was so meaningful that um, it's worthy of trying to hold on that 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 energy around trying to drive change is something that is worthy of holding on to. In fact, 
if I think back to a year ago when we came up with this corporate initiative, one of the things that we challenged each other on is what are we going to be able to say a year from now? Right? We, we're going out, we're being public. We've been public on a whole host of things. We've been public on this initiative. We've been public on, on pay equity gaps. We've been public on, on goals that we have around both gender and around uh, black representation. And by being public with these metrics and these goals, it ensures that we can hold ourselves and others can hold us accountable. And Jonathan, I think that's very important in order to you know, keep the momentum, keep the focus that, that you're alluding to in your question. Um, I was moved by the fact that it was broad representation um, getting behind this issue. I'm still encouraged by the fact that when I get in the room with the team here, I'm not the only one in the room, right? Mm -hmm. And there's broad representation around the table about what are we gonna do next? How are we gonna ensure that the next dollar is even more impactful, right? And so, so I'm I remain encouraged, but I also recognize that it's not something that you can just sit on the sideline and expect the momentum to continue on its own. It doesn't work that way. All right, last question for you. I can't have the, the CFO of one of the largest financial institutions in the country here and not ask an economics question. And that is this, well, actually it's two. No, it's one, because we don't have any time. Um, how concerned are you about inflation? There's a lot of talk about, you know, the economy is heating up and we gotta be worried about inflation and that could upend the recovery. Are you worried yeah. about that as an institution? Look, we, we, we talk about it all the time, as you would imagine. We are seeing signs that uh, we will see you know, inflation take place, everything from certain industries and sectors uh, recovering to just the broader economy coming out of this pandemic. Um, that said, I feel as though there are enough levers, if you will, in terms of policy that will allow for us to control inflation as it picks up. And so I've got complete confidence in our and our regulatory bodies, if you will, to fully appropriate level, levels to moderate that and control that as they see fit. Mark Mason, CFO of City, proud Howard University alum. And not only are we out of time, we are over time. So I thank you very much once again for thank coming you. to Washington Post Live. Thank you, Jonathan, great to see you. All right, have a good day. And as always, thank you for tuning in. Join me next Monday, June 7th, at 1 p.m. Eastern for another installment in our Race, uh, Race in America series, when I talk to the superb actor, Jonathan Majors, about his role in the hit television show, Lovecraft Country, and the impact culture has on our national conversation on race. Until then, I'm Jonathan Capehart, opinion writer for the Washington Post. Thank you for watching Washington Post Live. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.